0: So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then he asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This is the word of God. Thanks, John. John. God's
1: Word to us. I think you get your money's worth today. You get to hear a sermon read, and you get to hear another sermon on a sermon. (laughs) So You get two for the price of one this morning. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we can start looking at God's Word together. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you have spoken. You are the God who... Uh, reveals Yourself to us because You delight in drawing near to us. And Father, we pray that as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would draw us near to You. We pray that You would meet with us by Your Word and by Your Spirit. Open our hearts, we ask, even as we've just sung, show us Christ, we pray that it may be so. We, we pray that You would show us Christ. Help us to see our need for Him. Help us to come to Him and find in Him true rest. And we pray this in His name. Amen. So 500 years ago, in uh, 1517, an obscure monk in a small German town protested against the beliefs and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. He posted his 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, and he wanted the church to be clear about the gospel so that those 95 Theses were a means of beginning a, a disputation, a discussion with the church about what the gospel is. And the first thesis said, uh, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. A few years later, that same monk, Martin Luther, was summoned before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V to defend what he had taught and written about the gospel. They they called their meeting, uh, quite a funny name, the Diet of Worms. Diet of Worms. All of Luther's writings uh, were were laid on a table as evidence against him at that meeting. And uh, the prosecuting attorney, I think his name was John Eck, he he challenged Luther on all of his writings, asking him, so what what do you stand for? Do you agree with all these 25 writings? Is this what you say about the gospel? You can imagine the tremendous pressure, the the whole weight of, of the Holy Roman Empire was placed on him. He faced tremendous pressure to back down, tremendous pressure to recant, to turn away from what he believed in. So in that moment, what did Luther say? He said, give me a day. <laughs> I really need to be sure. Give me one day to think about it. I will give you my, I will give you my answer at 4pm tomorrow, the next day. How would we respond if we were in Luther's shoes? Would we stake our lives on the truth of the gospel? How would we respond? We're about halfway through our sermon series on the book of Acts entitled Unashamed of the Gospel. And to be unashamed of the gospel means that we are confident that the gospel will never disappoint us. To be unashamed of the gospel is to have the courage of conviction that the gospel is really worth living for and is also worth dying for. Now, to be truly unashamed of the gospel, I think step one is that we must be sure that the gospel that we're unashamed of is true. I mean, I don't think any one of us would be willing to die for a lie. Therefore, the the title of this sermon, What is the Gospel? It's it's not a trivial question. Our answer to this question reveals what we really believe. You know what? what we it reveals what we truly build our lives upon. It reveals what we build our church upon. And oftentimes the gospel isn't lost because we wake up one morning and decide to deny it, but the gospel is usually lost more gradually. We we've seen this happen in the post-Christian West. One generation believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel, sort of takes it for granted, says, yeah, we, have, we know that. We can kind of talk about other stuff. There's so much other stuff we can talk about. And then the next generation loses it. So it's a, perhaps a three-generation movement. And, and maybe some of us have even seen this happen in our own families, right? Where believing parents perhaps assume the gospel, and our children, and, or maybe grandchildren, seem to have lost it. Has this happened in our families? And this idea of getting the gospel right, is not just getting our doctrine right, but we need the gospel for all of life. You know, not, The gospel is not just for non-Christians, the gospel is very much for Christians as well. The gospel is not just the entry point into our Christian lives, the, the gospel carries us through our Christian lives. Uh, maybe an illustration would help. You know, many of us have flown on planes before, and we get a ticket that enables us to get onto the plane, and then we get to our destination. You know, sometimes we, perhaps we think of the gospel as that plane ticket. You know, it gets us onto the plane, but once you're on the plane, you know, we're fine, we kind of leave the, the ticket aside, because we're on, we're on a plane, we're in our seats. But, but that's not how the, the Bible thinks about the gospel. The, 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 the gospel is not just that plane ticket that gets us onto the plane. The gospel is the plane itself that brings us to our destination and brings us safely home. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, I mean, he said it really well. He said the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. So every one of us needs to be clear about what the gospel is. And in our passage today, as uh, John just read for us, we hear the Apostle Paul answer this crucial crucial question. What is the gospel? Paul Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. Having left Cyprus, they've travelled across the Mediterranean Sea to Perga, where we're told John Mark suddenly left them, but we're not told why he does that. So, Paul and Barnabas then go on on their own to Antioch in Pisidia, which is located in modern day Turkey. And this is a different Antioch from the Antioch that they came from, that sent them out. So, whenever Paul and Barnabas arrive in a new city, they would usually visit the, the Jewish synagogue in that city. So, he and Paul, uh, sorry, he, so he and Paul and Barnabas show up at the local synagogue where they are, they are given an opportunity to speak a word of encouragement. To the people, so Paul stands up, motions with his hand, and he preaches the gospel to those who are present in the synagogue, uh, mainly Jews, but also some Gentile proselytes and and some Gentile God-fearers as well. So this is the only record in Acts of uh, Paul's synagogue preaching. So it's only one record in Acts of what Paul says when he visits synagogues, and. Probably it's the only record because this is meant to be representative. It's meant to be a pattern, a good sample of what Paul would say every time he preaches the gospel in the synagogue. So these verses in Acts 13 are a summary of uh, how Paul understands the essence of the gospel. They're a really good summary of the gospel. And Paul's sermon makes three points about what is the gospel. And these are the same three points that I will go through in uh, the sermon this morning as well. So number one, the gospel assures us of God's grace and faithfulness. Now, since Paul is preaching mainly to Jews in the synagogue, he begins by giving an overview of the history of Israel. He begins with uh, Abraham, then he goes on to talk about the Exodus, then moves on to King David, and that's really the 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 high point of the first part of his sermon. So why does Paul why does Paul go through the Old Testament that way? Why does Paul take the time to kind of walk his listeners through the Old Testament? I think he's trying to show them you know, these are Jewish uh, these are Jewish uh, people in the synagogue. He's trying to show them that the gospel is not some new thing. The, the gospel isn't some uh, innovation that replaces the Old Testament. No, he's, Paul is trying to show them that the gospel flows out from the Old Testament. That the gospel has all along been there in the Old Testament. You know, maybe some of us have a, have a bit of a, uh, a view of the Bible as, you know, you can't think of the Old Testament as law and the New Testament as grace. You know, or maybe we think about the the Old Testament, God is a kind of wrathful, angry, judging God, and then in the New Testament, God is a gracious and loving God because he sends Jesus. That, that's, a, that's a wrong view of the Bible. I think Paul shows us that the whole Bible, from beginning to end, is a message of grace. That the whole Bible actually speaks of one message. and That's why Paul kind of goes through the Old Testament. So what's the point of Israel's history? Paul shows that the Old Testament is God's story. It's the story of how God has established His kingdom by saving God's people through the Exodus, by bringing God's people under God's rule, so King Saul and then King David, and then by giving them God's place, which is the promised land. So God has done that throughout the Old Testament. God's grace and His faithfulness forms the Foundation of the entire Old Testament story. So, if you look at verses seventeen to twenty-three, what what's Paul's emphasis in these verses? Paul emphasizes what God has done, again and again and again throughout the history of Israel. You know, he he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made Israel into a great nation. He led Israel out of Egypt with uplifted arm. He put up with them in the wilderness. God destroyed the nations of Canaan and gave Israel the land. He he gave Israel judges. God gave Saul to be Israel's first king. And when Saul failed, God raised up David to be king. You know, all through the history of Israel, again and again, we, we see God's grace to His people. He's the one who takes initiative. He's the one who takes action to save a people and to bless a people for Himself. Consider our own personal histories as we think back on our lives. Where do we see evidences of God's grace and faithfulness to us in our own personal histories? God has kept His promise to David. Paul says in verse 23, of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. And God made this promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, which says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. This this kingdom of an offspring of David. And this offspring of David, God says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's the one who fulfills God's promise to David in the Old Testament? Paul says it's Jesus. You know, of this man's offspring, he has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Now, Jesus is the, the greatest assurance that we have of God's grace and faithfulness. He's no ordinary man. Jesus is the glorious God come in the flesh. He became like us in order to be our saviour, from sin and death. Now, Paul tells us that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, urging people to call on him, to come to him, and, and to repent and believe in him. And, and John himself acknowledges that he is unworthy to untie the sandals of Messiah Jesus' feet. Now, if you're speaking to the Jews in Paul's, in Paul's day, you, you would have been speaking to a people who might have been discouraged. A people who feel uh, cut off. Uh, people who feel weary and tired. Maybe like some of us this morning. The Jews in Paul's day would have wondered if God was still faithful. If God still kept His promises. After all, the Jews were being ruled by Rome. They had no land of their own. They had no true king of their own. Many were scattered far from Jerusalem and from the Promised Land. So Paul brings a word of encouragement to them. How does he encourage them? He shows them from the Old Testament, culminating in Jesus, he shows them that right from the beginning, God has never failed to be faithful. God's grace and faithfulness have never failed. Even as Israel's history has seen its ups and downs, God has never been less than faithful to them. He's kept His word to them. He's kept His word to them by sending His Son, Jesus. You know, some of us here might be wondering if God is real. You know, perhaps you're wondering, you know, if God is real, how come uh, you know, I don't see Him? How come I don't sense His working? And even if He is exists, you know, how do we know that God cares? Paul's sermon tells us that the, the coming of Jesus tells us very clearly that God is at work. He's at work in the world, and God has taken the initiative to draw near to us, even when we were still far from Him. God is gracious, and I think His, his acts in the history of Israel shows us that He cares. And He invites us to come to Him through this son of David, Jesus. It can be hard to trust God during tough times, especially when we are trying to see God's grace and faithfulness through our circumstances. Uh, sometimes it's really hard to see God's grace and faithfulness in our circumstances. Why? Because God's grace and faithfulness isn't always obvious in our circumstances. You know, life is messy. Life is confusing. Uh, our circumstances are perplexing. You know, illnesses that, don't seem to, that we don't seem to recover from, chronic pain that never goes away, a loved one who dies suddenly. I mean, life is confusing. And if we simply try to see God's faithfulness in our circumstances, it can be really confusing as well. You know, we're often left wondering, That's God, is God really faithful? If He's really faithful, then why is this happening to me? Why am I suffering in this way? when will the pain and sorrow end? We're not always able to see God's hand in our suffering. And during those times, what do we need to be reminded of? During those times, we need to be reminded to look above our circumstances, beyond our circumstances, and we need to consider the the faithful God of the gospel. The gospel is evidence that God is gracious and faithful. And because of the Gospel, we can know for certain that He's faithful because He has kept every single one of His promises to send a Saviour. That, that's evidence of God's faithfulness to us. We, we need no greater evidence than to consider how Christ has come in fulfilment of every single one of God's words to us. And one day God will keep His promise to make all things new through His Son. So our hope is not ultimately based on our circumstances, our our sense of well-being, our sense that God is near, is not ultimately founded on our circumstances which change with the changing seasons of life, but our hope is ultimately anchored on the unchanging faithfulness of God to us in the gospel of His Son. Now, Paul's sermon shows that the Old Testament is fundamentally a book about Jesus. Now, God's make, God makes promises in the Old Testament that He keeps in the New Testament with the coming of His Son. So you know, if you want a, like a two-word summary of what the Old Testament is about, you know, the Old Testament is about really promises made. And the New Testament is about promises kept. And the Bible is ultimately one story that reaches a climax with the coming of Jesus, that the whole Bible points to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. You know, so all, all the stories in the Bible, you know, you, you know, if you read the Old Testament, you have all these individual stories. You ever wondered how all these individual stories kind of connected to one another? All these stories connect to that big story of the coming of Jesus in fulfillment of all of God's promises. What's, what are some good resources to help us to think about this? Right? I, you know, this is something that we've read with our children at home, and we found it really helpful. You know, sometimes we think, how do we teach the, the Old Testament especially in a way that shows this big story of the coming of Jesus? Right? The Old Testament stories are not just individual morality tales or, or individual stories of different heroes, but rather the Old Testament is a story of how all these people point to the coming King, Jesus Christ, so this is something that we've done with our kids at home. You know, we've, we've read from this book. Maybe you can zoom in on the camera. It's an advertising break. It's called The Big Picture Story Bible. And, and you know, if you're not a kid, you can read this too. It, it's a really helpful book. So we read it with our children. And it's a really helpful book that shows how all the stories in the Bible connect with the coming of Jesus Christ, that big story. So one, The Big Picture Story Bible. Another helpful book to read, if you're a parent, we you have kids, you're wondering what, what can I read with them during our devotions, uh, read this, the Jesus Storybook Bible. I mean, another really good resource that helps us to see how all these Old Testament stories, how, 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 all the, whole, how the whole Bible really points us to Jesus Christ. Uh, Sunday school teachers, you might want to just pick up these resources and just take a look at them. So the Big Picture Story Bible and the Jesus Storybook Bible. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is, the, is really the, the context in which the whole Bible is rightly understood. You know, this means that when we read or when we teach the Bible, we must ask what any particular passage of the Bible tells us about Jesus. How does it connect us to, to Christ and the gospel? That, that means our work at understanding God's Word isn't done until we see Jesus. Like how does this point us to Jesus Christ? What does this tell us? about the gospel. The Bible is full of Christ. Therefore, I I pray that all that we say as a church, all that we do as a church, all that we teach as a church is likewise full of Christ as well. Whether you're reading the Bible with someone, you're helping each other to see Christ in Scripture, you may be leading a, a small group study as a CG leader. You're helping your group to see Jesus. How does this show us our need for Him? How does this show us what He's done for us? If, if you're encouraging someone through trials and difficulty, are you pointing them to Christ? Are you, are you encouraging them with the gospel, helping them to see that their hope is found not ultimately in the change of their circumstances, but their hope is found in Christ Himself? whether you're serving in any ministry or you're teaching a Sunday school class, you're connecting people to Jesus, including preaching a sermon. We're preaching Christ, not ourselves, not our own ideas. Now, many of you would have heard of C.H. Spurgeon. You know, Spurgeon said these words, you know, the motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and Him crucified. A sermon without Christ, Spurgeon says, in it is like a a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Amen. Amen to that. May we as a church preach Christ. Second thing that Paul says in this sermon: the gospel is the news that Jesus died and was raised to save us. Verses 26 to 37. Now, in these verses, Paul really gets to the heart of the gospel. You know, Paul says the gospel is the good news that announces what God has done through His Son. You know, it's important to realize that it's news, right? The gospel is good news. You know, imagine when you. Imagine you pick up the newspapers tomorrow, and the headline in the newspaper says, "The government will credit a $1,000 National Day bonus in all bank accounts of citizens." It's not true, okay? So don't don't check your bank account just yet. (laughs) Imagine, imagine that. Imagine that's a headline that you read tomorrow. How would you respond to that headline, that piece of news? Right? You you wouldn't say, "Oh, that's a nice suggestion. I hope it comes true." Right? You wouldn't say that because news, right? It's a newspaper. You wouldn't say, oh great, let me, let me see if I can raise the $1,000 for myself and, and try to earn that money by myself. No, you, you wouldn't say that. You, know. you read that headline and you receive it as news of something that the government has done and will do. And you receive it as done, as accomplished fact. And you simply receive the benefits of the government's generosity. I mean, that, that's how we respond to that headline, to that piece of news. The gospel is just like that. The gospel is news. It, it, it's like the headline that we read in the papers that announces what God has already done through Jesus, his son. The gospel is not good advice. The, the gospel doesn't say to us, hey, I think it's a good idea for you to get your life together. The gospel doesn't say that. The gospel says God has done something through His Son. So the gospel does not, the gospel does not primarily teach us a way of life. The, the gospel doesn't say, live in this way, actually. The, the gospel isn't something that we do, but the gospel is something that has been done for us and something that we simply respond to, like the news that we read in the newspapers. Yes, the good news must and will lead to a new way of life, but but we mustn't confuse the results of the gospel, which is that new way of life, with the gospel itself. Now, why is it so important to keep them distinct? Because Scripture is very clear about this. Scripture says to us, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's not something that we've done. It is the gift of God, like the thousand dollars that the government will will put into your bank accounts. No, it's not a result of works so that no one, no one may boast. And if we confuse the gospel with the results of the gospel, then, then we can easily drift towards salvation by works, even if it's just a bit of works. We can, we can begin to drift towards legalism, being judgmental against others who don't meet those standards that we've set. And we, we can drift towards pride, a sense of self-salvation. We can drift towards moralism, I mean, so it's so important that we get the gospel right and, and keep the gospel distinct from the results of the gospel. At the same time, we mustn't separate the good news from the new way of life that results. Because the same passage that I've just read from Ephesians 2 goes on to say, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, the, the, the gospel is news and is distinct from the results of the gospel. But if we separate the, the good news from the results of the gospel, what are we left with? We're left with formalism. We're left with empty religion, hypocrisy, dead orthodoxy, and maybe even licentiousness, where we kind of live as we want. Because, hey, we're saved, right? So we can do whatever we please. So, it's so important to kind of keep those things distinct, the gospel and the results of the gospel, and not separate them as well. So what is the gospel? Paul tells us in these verses that the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done. And two things, really. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So if you wonder about you know, how, can I, how can you share the gospel with someone, you know, how can you be faithful in speaking of Jesus to someone, Paul says you need to say these two things. Jesus died according to the Scriptures. Jesus was raised according to the Scriptures. You know, any, any gospel presentation that does not speak of these two things is not a faithful gospel presentation. That this is what it means to understand the gospel. So let's, let's look first at Jesus' death. You know, so in these verses, what does Paul say about the death of Jesus? It says Jesus was innocent. You know, it says in verse 28, they, they found in Him no guilt worthy of death was innocent. And and yet, verses 27 and 28 says Jesus was condemned by both the Jews and the Gentiles, by those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, as well as by Pilate, the Roman governor. And in verse 29, Paul goes on to say Jesus died. And he died on the tree and was buried. It's verse 29. So in the Old Testament, to be hung on a tree is... A sign of coming under God's curse. That's what it means to hang on a tree. It was the most dishonorable of deaths. One could die. But you think, why would Jesus, who was perfectly righteous, why did he die like an accursed man? You now Paul says, Jesus died to fulfill God's word. You know what, what word of God could Paul be thinking about? Perhaps Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 tells us about the death of Jesus and he says these words. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. With His wounds, oh, sorry, upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way and the Lord has laid on Him Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus died as an accursed man in order to fulfill God's Word. And God's plan was for Jesus to die on behalf of sinners. He bore the curse of God's judgment on our behalf so that we can be saved from God's wrath if we trust in Him. Jesus is the righteous servant who suffered in our place for the sake of of the unrighteous, So this is what Paul says about the death of Jesus. He died as a sinner, not because he sinned himself, but he died, identifying with sinners, taking on himself the guilt of our sin. And then Paul goes on to talk about Jesus' resurrection in his sermon. Paul says, God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 30. And, and by raising Jesus, God shows that he is well pleased with his Son, with the perfect obedience of His Son. And Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus vindicates Jesus as the holy and righteous One who conquered Satan, sin, and death. And Jesus' disciples saw Jesus after He was raised and they are now eyewitnesses for the Gospel, verse 31. So Paul says the resurrection wasn't just a figment of imagination, the resurrection actually happened and they are real eyewitnesses who saw Physically, the risen Christ. Paul says the the resurrection is the coronation of King Jesus. He was always king, but the resurrection of Jesus fully reveals him as the king of glory. And Jesus' resurrection exalts him as God's glorified son, who comes from the line of David in fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. God's promises there. Paul says Jesus is David's greatest son, the the king who rules on God's throne forever. Forever because he has been raised from the dead, never to die again in fulfillment of God's word. So then Paul goes on to quote two Old Testament passages that that kind of show us this truth. First he quotes from Psalm 2, which reads, As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Then Psalm sixteen, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption. Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament passages that speak of the resurrection of the eternal life of God's King. And Paul says in verse 32 that Jesus' resurrection fulfills God's promise to Abraham even. You know, when he promised Abraham that he would bless the nations of the world through one of Abraham's offspring, how did that come about? Through the resurrection of Jesus. And he blesses the nations through the resurrection life that this Jesus gives to all who trust in him. So in his sermon, Paul says this is the core truth of the Gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That any time we share the Gospel, any time we speak of Jesus, we, we need to explain His death and His resurrection. But, but these truths that we explain, His death and his, resu- and his resurrection, are not just kind of historical facts outside of us, but rather if you think about it, when we believe in Jesus, we are joined to Him by faith and what happens? We, we share in His death and we also share in His resurrection. So, so these historical truths don't just remain outside of us, but we begin to experience them in our own lives when we believe in Jesus. When we believe in Him, we are one with Him. Therefore, we have died with Christ to sin. We have been raised to life, to live in newness of life. Now, because we have believed in this Jesus who's died and who's raised, we too die and will be raised. Now, this is what it means to to die to ourselves every day. I think that's why Luther said the, the whole Christian life is one of repentance. Because if we've been united to Christ, we die to ourselves every day. What does that look like? What does it look like to die to yourself every day? Maybe putting aside opinions and ideas that don't conform to Christ. Maybe kind of being willing to forego your own personal comfort, your, your own uh, long-established practices because you're, so, because you're so used to them. Maybe It means to die to that. Because that's what it means to die to yourself. It means to to put aside anything that hinders you from following Jesus, from putting His gospel first in your life. It means also looking at our relationships. Do our relationships really honour Christ? And other things in in our relationships that we need to die to in order to follow Jesus. Am I willing to to serve someone else in humility? To, to, To lay down my preferences because that's what it means to die to myself? Husbands, what does it mean to die to yourself in your relationship with your wives? You know, how would you lay down your life for your wife just as Christ laid down His life for the bride, for the church? I think we can think about many ways in which the Gospel moves us to die daily to ourselves. Why, why do we do that? Because we have been united to Christ by faith. And just as He died, we also die. But the good news is that we don't just die, right? The Gospel also tells us that we have been raised to newness of life. So, so we don't just die into nothing, but we've died to ourselves in order to be raised to walk a new life in the power of Christ's resurrection. You know, what, what gives us strength to put aside ourselves, not not our willpower, not because we're good people, but the thing that gives us strength to die to ourselves is that same power that raised Christ from the dead. That is our hope. That, that is our strength. This is what it means to, to, to live out of the truths of the gospel where we have died with Christ and we are raised with Him in newness of life. That, that's the hope of the gospel that we, we kind of plug ourselves into when we believe in Jesus. That, that's a strength that we need to live differently day by day. That's a strength that we need to patiently endure suffering now. And we understand because we, 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 sh- we share in Christ. Scripture tells us we, we also share in His sufferings. And, and we share in His sufferings now. We patiently endure trials now. Why? in order that we may one day also be glorified together with Him. This, this gives us real hope in the darkest seasons of life. We're not, we're not hoping in our circumstances only. In fact, our circumstances might not get better. But the, the hope that we have is the knowledge that one day, because we share in Jesus' sufferings now, we shall one day share in His resurrection also. That's the hope that we have. And that's, that's the hope that I, I pray that we begin to speak into each other's lives. That, that we have an unchanging hope in Christ in the power of His resurrection. Every time you speak to someone who's hurting, that, that's the hope that you speak into their lives. This is what it means to know Jesus, right? To, 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 to know Him more and more. Paul says, you know, this is what it means to know Jesus, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. and and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's what it means to really know Jesus and to live out of the gospel. Finally, the gospel calls us to true life and joy. The gospel is good news for each and every one of us. Why do we need the gospel? It's because we have all sinned against a perfectly holy God who created us to know him, Our sins have separated us from God, who is the source of true life and joy. So think about this for a moment. Are you weighed down by the weight of your guilt and shame? Just consider your own heart. Are you struggling with guilt and shame? You know, it could be sin in your past, sins in our past that we're really ashamed of, Maybe sins we've never told anyone about because we're just too ashamed of them. Or for some of us, it may be even sins in the present. Maybe something that you've just done this past week, this past month, or you're still struggling with. It could be a a secret sin that you've not shared because you're afraid of what others might think of you. You are, Are we laboring under the burden and weight of guilt and shame? You have, to read, you have to read verse 38 really carefully. Because verse 38 is for each and every one of us. Let it be known to you. Let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. To you. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. To, to, to us who, who labour under the weight of guilt and shame, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to us. If this is not good news, I, I don't know what is. Through Jesus, we can be forgiven. That's the news that Paul announces to us in his sermon. We can be forgiven, not just partly, not just conditionally, but freely, completely. Though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Have, have we tasted? Have we tasted of God's superabundant mercy for us? Have you, have you tasted God's mercy and allowed that mercy to lift the weight of guilt and shame that so burdens your heart? Have you tasted of God's amazing mercy? Now, I, I love the scene from uh, from John, John Bunyan's story, The Pilgrim's Progress. You know, his, some of you may know the story. You know, he's carrying this huge weight of sin on his back. You know, it's like this huge haversack that just weighs him down. And then, and then this then pilgrim, you know, Christian—that's his name—he he walks closer and closer, and he sees the cross. What happens at the cross? As, as Christian comes and he's, he's kind of burdened by this weight of sin, and as he comes to the cross, that weight falls off. You know, that weight falls off his back, and he stands up for the first time in his life, unencumbered by the burden and guilt and shame of sin. That, that's the glory of the gospel, friends. Meditate on verse 38 again and again. This is proclaimed to you, forgiveness of sins. And, and having received this kind of mercy, you know, I think it's very natural that we would be merciful to others as well because we've received such abundant mercy from God. And not only are we forgiven, Paul goes on to say, but Jesus also covers the nakedness of our guilt and shame with His perfect Righteousness. Paul says, everyone who believes in Jesus is is freed. And the word free is better translated justified. That's what that word means. Everyone who believes in Jesus is justified, declared righteous by God from everything. God alone gives us the righteousness we so badly need but cannot produce for ourselves. Because of Jesus, we can stand before a holy God righteous, and unashamed. And I pray that each and every one of us will will be able to say these words, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Paul says the law cannot justify us, good works cannot save us. We're righteous not because of how well we obey or perform, we're righteous because Jesus perfectly obeyed God for us you know legalism moralism the you know religion kind of says you must do you must do in order to be accepted you must be a certain way in order to be accepted but jesus in the good news says done done what do you say on the cross it is finished do we really believe that it is finished, done. An amazing thing is that this Jesus invites us to share in what He has already done. Jesus calls us into the freedom of the gospel, but we can find true rest for our souls. So do not harden your heart in unbelief against the gospel. Paul warns in verses 40 and 41, that those who reject the gospel will perish. So don't be like those in this account who opposed Paul and Barnabas and, and drove them away out of their city. Instead, you know, hear the call of the gospel, hear the comfort of the gospel and come. Come and put your faith in Jesus. Receive Him. And even if you received Him, ask for a, a fresh kind of appropriation of Him. I ask that He might make the gospel real again in your hearts. You know, he will fill us with joy and the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I, I like how joy is a mark of a true follower of Jesus, right? Joy. Unbridled joy in Jesus. Now, scripture says the, the, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And how do we have joy in the Lord? by receiving joy through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we gather as God's people, we rejoice in this salvation that we have freely through the Son of God. And I pray that we as a church will be characterized by joy, by gospel joy, where every time we meet, we are giving thanks to God, we are praising God for what He's done for us through His Son. Every time we meet with one another, we are encouraging one another with the joy that is ours, through Jesus Christ. I, I wish I saw more smiling faces. It's okay. Joy could be in our hearts. I, I wish we as a church would just overflow with joy so that we are we known as a church of joy where, where people who come among us experience the joy of knowing Jesus. You know, maybe know this joy that is true because of forgiveness of sins, because of righteousness through Jesus Christ. The gospel that we proclaim is the power of God for salvation. I began with the story of Luther. I left it when Luther asked for a bit of a recess and he spent one day thinking about his answer. So the next day, Luther came back and Luther was ready to give his answer to the prosecution. What did he say? Luther said these words about the gospel. He said, I consider myself convicted By the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God, help me. And I pray that God will help us to be unashamed of this gospel, this gospel that truly saves this gospel that gives us forgiveness, free forgiveness. This gospel that gives us joy, that gives us righteousness in Christ. Now, now, this is the gospel worth living for. This is the gospel worth dying for. I pray that each and every one of us will be unashamed of this gospel. We're going to sing in a moment, you know, Come, Ye Sinners. And I, it's a new song, I understand. But as we we sing the words of this song, I pray that we would see ourselves as sinners in need of this gospel, that as we sing these words, these words reflect the state of our hearts. We will cry out to Jesus, yes, Lord, come, and may we come to you and find in you true life and joy. Let's spend some time praying together, and then after that, the, the song, the music team will come and lead us as we sing this song together. Let's all pray together. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the Gospel. Father, we thank you that you are the one who has saved through your Son. We pray that as we sing the words of this song, we pray that we would come to you, that we would find in you a fresh, true life and joy. We pray that this Gospel would really take root in our hearts and move us to love you to love you more and more, to to live for you and to die for you. We pray that this gospel would move us to also love one another, to uh, encourage one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.